three, two, one. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Um, we've got Jimmy DeResta on the show, but before I get to introduce him, you can't hang on. You and, can't just you and, can't just and, go. Oh, we've got Jimmy DeResta on the show. <laughs> the, I, do you know Do you know why I want to introduce Jimmy like that? Because it feels like all the intros that I've done in the past. We don't need to go through that. We just let's just just throw it in there and just 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 get the name. The it's name okay with me. On the show. Hey, it's okay with me. Less pressure but, for but me. Before we do that, before we do that, I do just want to say one thing. Um, Joey, myself, and Jordan, who's no longer with the show, we started this podcast many many years ago, and um, at that time, we didn't think that we would be getting high level guests on the show. Uh, here we are, all those years later, interviewing. Mr. Jimmy DeResta, the legend oh himself. And it's oh, just, it's boy. A, it's, a, <laughs> it's a really big moment for all of us. You know, we've had people following along this, this podcast for the entire time, and it's a, real big, uh, it's a real big achievement for us. And I just want to highlight that and say, you know, thanks to everyone who's been listening for so long. And, and here we are years later interviewing top echelon guests. Yeah, <laughs> well, really I, I appreciate you putting me in that category because... I'm like, who are, you, who are you talking about? Who's going to be the guest? <laughs> so, welcome to the show, Jimmy DeResta. How are you this evening? I'm great. I'm great, guys. Thanks for having me back. It's, uh, it's exciting. It's, uh, we're only a couple weeks away, which is crazy because it seems like it's still a half a year away. That's like yeah, what yeah. it seems like. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, man, May is just a couple of days away. Yep. Scared. And you, you still have to go to the UK as well, don't you? I do, yeah. I'm going to go to Maker Central yeah. on the 12th and the 15th. I leave London and come and see you guys. Awesome. We met up with Jimmy about a month ago to do some promotion for the Wood Dust event that we talked about in the last uh, episode, in episode one. And uh, so this is sort of, uh, this whole Jimmy coming on the show was, was born out of that meeting. Um, Jimmy very graciously just said, well, seeing as you guys do a podcast... Uh, do you want a guest? I'll I'll be that man. So yeah, thanks again for coming on, Jimmy. Really appreciate it. Of course, thank you. I'm going to crack in with the first question because I saw a little while ago on your Instagram. Uh, I think it was a reel, and obviously I can't find it anymore. It looked like you were unloading a bulldozer, a small bulldozer off a trailer. <laughs> is that a new? That a is ago. that a new vehicle that you have bought? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the stranger, the older, the more difficult to start. Those are the type of things I look for. We, me and Rob, Rob's my, my assistant, uh, we found in 1953, 1954, John Deere bulldozer, which is so funny. The timing is unbelievable. Rob said to me, you know what we need? We need a bulldozer to play with. <laughs> and like, he, like we're in the rural. We're like, I don't know if you guys are in any rural farm yeah, communities, yeah. but up, up here in the rural farm community, everybody's got abandoned derelict vehicles Machines. on the property. Yeah. You know, especially the bigger the acreage, the more vehicles you have like buried in the woods. And they're always yeah. fun to try and recover and get started again. And so Rob said that, and I knew of this giant bulldozer, like a huge one. That's on a property, abandoned property. I kind of contacted the owner about another vehicle. They had a Cadillac on the property, too. So I wrote them through the tax map. And they answered back. And they said to me, we also have a bulldozer if you want that, too. But they never replied to me. That was a year ago. So I said, yeah, I want everything. But they never wrote back. So I said to Rob, I'm like, that, that place over in Earlton, the guy's got a big bulldozer, but he won't write back. So that night I wrote to the guy. He never wrote back again. A few days goes by, and my my landscape guy who takes care of a lot of like drainage and stuff my property called me and says i just inherited a property from my neighbor there's lots of derelict vehicles on it if you want to come take a look and the first thing i saw was this mini bulldozer and i was like the gods have answered our prayers and i worked out a deal got it really cheap and easy and then me and rob went over there and started playing with it and we, rob is amazing he got it started figured out the parts we needed which was like you know it's like uh ignition stuff and it started and it runs fantastic. It's unbelievable how well it runs. And so it's in my yard now. We, we got it on the trailer, got it off here and we're doing the sheet metal over. Not, it doesn't need much. Just doing the paint and the sheet metal, the decals and making a new seat. And that'll be a video. Have the guys on your podcast given you a hard time yet about buying another vehicle? We have Bob and Dave. Yeah, yeah. They're always breaking my onions because I keep buying stuff with wheels on it. <laughs> but, you know, I'm a little... What do you get? What do you get more pleasure out of? Is it this kind of designing and making of things or is it restoration projects like that? 
bringing things back to life? It's funny. A lot of people say to me, what is my, my hobby? And I always say my hobby is, you know, I do what I do, but I don't make money. <laughs> I guess it's just the same thing, but I don't get paid. But I really, if, if I really had to like break up a hobby, I guess my hobby would be fiddling on engines and cars and stuff. Because I'm not really, really good at it. I mean, I don't like, I, I, we all have that one friend that could listen to an engine run and they like, timing's off. You get a loose rocker, mm, yeah. you know, you get, you need a little oil and, you know, like you got that one friend that somehow was just born with car skills and I wasn't ever really born with that, that, that gene. And so for me, it's always a little bit of a struggle tinkering on cars. And like, for instance, this, this bulldozer wasn't getting electrical spark. And for me, that's like a game, that's a game stopper right there. I'd be like, never mind. I don't need it. I have no <laughs> idea how to fix that. But Rob <laughs> pulled up the schematics and figured out that we needed a new coil and, check the ignition stuff. So Rob, Rob really saved the day there. So that type of stuff. So like I said, I, I'm, it's a hobby to me. And also in the same, in the same so-called pick, there's a 1970 GMC buried, like literally buried in trash in the backyard. And I said, I want that one. <laughs> and the owner's like, you can have it. <laughs> it's, I'll pull up a picture. You guys will take this picture. I guess now that you've got the, the space, because obviously your old workshop in New York, you wouldn't have, you know, that would have been a lot harder to, to house something like that. Now with your, where your, your new workshop is, you've got all the space to, to, to play with. Yeah, well, that's funny because when I started living up here full <laughs> time, that's the GMC wow. buried and it's got all the Jimmy, parts. Jimmy is, Jimmy is showing us a photo of a, uh, a ute, what Aussies would call a ute, Americans would probably call a truck. Absolutely yeah. buried in trees. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's got trees growing up all around it. So we're going to come there with a chainsaw and a couple of things to yank it out. So, um, yeah, no, when I moved upstate full time, I, I bought this property nearly 20 years ago, just barely with like no money, no money down before, you know, the, the world global crisis in, in 08. Yeah. I bought the house in 04. And I bought the house with no money down. And it, it was all I could have just to ca just to keep it. And I was coming up on the weekends and I just really focused only on the house itself. But then as time went on, I started really exploring the property. It's 40 acres and I hope they haven't looked on the property. So I, I started exploring the property and, and uh, ultimately when I was able to move up here full time in 2017, when I got, I, I didn't lose my shop in the city, but the, the landlord made me an offer. My little old shop that was in my early videos, my landlord said, if you give us back that space, you won't have to pay certain you know, things that I, I owed certain right. like insurance and such on and taxes to the landlord. The landlord goes, you could, I just want the space back. He wanted the space back to utilize for the building and the tenants. Right. And uh, he said, he goes, if, if you move out two years sooner than you need to, than my lease, I'll, I'll waive all those fees. And I said, that sounds like a good deal to me. So I left yeah. there and it was the timing was right too financially for me to come up here. All my money was, was, was being earned by restaurants and and private clients in, in and around my neighborhood. So I was doing mm -hmm. restaurant work. And I always felt like if I came up to the house full time, I would have a really hard time keeping those clients or being able to kind of move quickly on work that they offered me. Like I would get, I had a couple of restaurant chains that would call me. In the city, you have like these financial groups that own like 10 restaurants. And they're all different. You know, they're not, it's not like McDonald's. They're all completely different. You know, these restaurant financial groups own seven or eight restaurants. And I had a couple of those as clients. So they know that I could fix anything in any one of their restaurants or build a table. So they were pretty lucrative accounts for me. And if I came upstate, I knew I wouldn't be able to move on them quickly. But YouTube started making me more money. And then the timing was right. And I was like, I can make money up here. It doesn't matter because I'm now making more advertising money than physical physical product money. Yeah. And so I came up and then I had all the room to collect everything I needed. And that's where it happened. Yeah. <laughs> just last week we were talking about, because I've just recently moved uh, quite far away from the main city of Auckland. And we were just talking about how, how has my work progressed and, and that I was a little worried about losing the, the city work but actually all the work I, I i'm getting now is from my local area but obviously you just change completely and, and change yeah, it forces and, you yeah 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 it, it, you know i mean it, it's it's obviously i i always say I, I always jokingly say i have to reinvent myself like madonna but I, I mean in a way it really is true it's like each each big move you make you have to try and figure out okay how am i going to be able to get blood out of this stone this new stone how am i going to be able to make whatever's going on here work for me. And I haven't had to, 
pull the contractor card up here because there are a lot of New Yorkers up here. Buy, they buy properties up here and they don't know what they're doing. And me being a New Yorker, knowing how I can, I can relate to them, having once been a New Yorker, and then also being able to do everything. That's, it's a big problem. People, people move up here from the country, uh, move to the country from the city during the pandemic, and they don't understand. They've been used to living in an apartment where all the amenities are basically handled by the super or the landlord. But when you're in a house like mine, I'm in a 4,000-square-foot house that's 200 years old. You know, if it's breezy on the north side of the house one day, the pipes on that side of the house will freeze. I won't have water in that bathroom, you know, or, or suddenly like I'll be sleeping and I'll be like, hmm, there's nobody home. Why do I hear the shower running? And then I realize there's like a pipe in the basement that's broken. <laughs> you know, it's just like these are things that I can handle. Like I immediately know which spigots to shut off or, mm -hmm. you know, know, you know how to like restart the heater. But there are a lot of New Yorkers. So the, the long story there is I haven't taken advantage of that yet. I haven't had to. But if I do, I know I could drum up tons of clients right. being either a handyman or just a, a fabricator. Is it not a thing over there? Definitely in Australia, people moved rural during the pandemic. In Melbourne, when we were in our lockdowns, people went to sort of regional Victoria. And since everything's reopened again, people have struggled and have started to move back again. Is it a similar thing in, in sort of upstate New York? People began to leave or not just yet? Well, you know, real estate prices have kind of come down a little bit because not as many people are moving back into the rural or, you know, out of the city. And I think what has happened was that people move out of the city and then that sort of created like a little bit of a vacuum. And some people from out of state were yeah. like, oh, now's my opportunity to get an apartment in New York because rates have come down. Right. But now yep. rates in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. So I don't think too many people have rubber banded back. Probably, I'm sure some people, you know, made a yeah. uh, had buyer's remorse when they buy an old house and they realize, I have no idea what I'm doing. It's freezing. Yeah. Like even my my house on a, on a cold winter day, it could be. I know you guys probably deal in Celsius, but it could be basically zero degrees Celsius here. And people that are staying with me are like, is this as good as it's going to get? Like, can it get any warmer? <laughs> can you turn the heat on? Yeah. <laughs> like, the heat is full blast. I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> just happens to be a windy night when the wind blows. Uh, like, when the wind blows, like, things blow off my kitchen table inside the house. I mean, that's how creaky this house is. Do you, do you look back at that New York, that underground shop? And, I mean, are there any parts of it that you miss? You know, I, the only thing I miss, the only thing I miss is not the physicality of it all, but just the social life. Up here, I, I'm alone for hours on end. You know, there was so many more opportunities to just meet anybody, anytime, anywhere in New York City. You can literally make friends with somebody sitting beside them at a coffee shop and you make a long lasting friend. Up here, it's a little different. You know, you guys all know what it's like. You know, you're in one city, you come to another city or you're from the city and you go to the country. That's like a real... There's a real bias there. If you're from the city, you come to the country, they immediately just assume you're a moron. You have no idea what you're doing. And, you know, <laughs> you're going to, like, run over your dog with your tractor. Or, you know, this is the type of thing. So you immediately get that kind of bias. And, and I'm still meeting people that are like, you're that guy from TV, huh? <laughs> so when you moved up there, there was no shop for you to work in or you had an old barn or something? Well, when, or I, first, when I first got the house, uh, I had... Just a little, what, what I called my machine shop. Mm. And uh, if, if, if anybody saw my stories yesterday that was showing off my little chickens, they're in my machine shop. That was the, the only shop I had up here at the time. It's just a little garage. It's 20 by 20. And I have a few machines in there. I had a table saw. I had a table saw that ran off of a, off of a generator. So I'd have to go out there, pull stop the generator. This is all like in 2005 <laughs> and f six and seven. So around, around 2009, I, I, I broke off a couple of hundred dollars and had an electrician run electric out there because there was electric out there, but somebody had cut it by accident. And it, the only real electric that was needed out there was for light bulbs, you know, for the previous owners. Nobody ever like thought about turning it into a shop with proper, with proper uh, voltage and such. So I broke off uh, several hundred dollars and had an electrician get it all geared up. But for those first few years, I would anytime I had done a couple of movies early on. Uh, well, no, no, I'm lying because I just started YouTube when I got electric. I'm just thinking of the repairs that I did in the house with the generator. So long story short, that was my only shop up here. Occasionally, there's a couple of videos where I have tools out on the grass. I have yeah. my old 18-inch crescent, crescent uh, jointer, and I had nowhere to put it. 
so I had it. I couldn't bring it to the city. I bought it before I had the shop up here. I bought it. So I had nowhere to put it. So I leave it outside and I would just slather it with oil and cover it. And then when I needed it, I would open it up and then just cut, throw sawdust all over it, soak the oil off, wipe it off, use it, and then cover it back up. So, I mean, I, 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 you know, as time went on, I kept making more and more improvements. And then, of course, I built a big barn. And now I'm in the process of building a second barn. So, you know, just it's slow builds. You know, I, set, I just set goals like this is, this is my next thing. That's my next thing. And, you know, thankfully, I've been able to afford it, you know, barely. So the big barn was a long process, was it? Like when when did you start? When did you break ground on the on the big barn? The big barn, the one that was on the TV show. If you guys happen a chance to see the Netflix show, we started that in October of 2017. Kyle from R and R Builders came, and I found him on Instagram, and I was like, I, "I need you to build my building." He's like, "I never leave my space. Mm. I never I never leave my my Illinois area." And I was like, well, take a look at what I do. Maybe it might be an opportunity for you. And he looked and he's like, you know what? Maybe I'll do it. And so he came to visit. We picked a spot in the backyard and we walked around and we, we roped it off. And he's like, all right, prepare this. I'll come back in a couple months and we'll start the foundation. I was like, okay. That was like sort of at the end of the winter of, that was in the winter of 2017. And then that summer I cleared the pad and then he came back in October and started doing the foundation work. Actually, that's that August he did the foundation work, and then he came back to build the shell. And he built the shell from October first. Took him two weeks. Unbelievable. But that's just the shell. That didn't include windows, no slab, no siding, no interior siding, nothing. And then over the next several months, uh, several years, we just okay, we're going to do the slab in, in in December, and then we do the exterior in the spring, and then you know it was it was. It didn't seem like it was, it was ever going to come to an end, honestly, because it was so piecemealed. And that was also because that's how I was earning money. I'd be like, okay, I got $25,000, let us do something. I got $30,000, let us do something. And those several months in between each one of those lumps of money. But, but to put it in perspective, it wasn't until – so that was October of 17, the shell was completed. No, no doors, no floor, no windows, no nothing. It wasn't until – March of 2021 that I did the interior and I considered it basically done. We still have plans of putting a second floor in, me and my architect, but, uh, you know, that still has to go on hold until I spend money on a few other things. I saw that cool little model you made. Yeah, Um, that was fun. That was a fun little project. Yeah, that was a cool thing. You know, I was going to say to you, the first thing, when when I saw you build the model and you put all the kind of um, floor joists through to, sh- yep. to show that mid floor. The first thing I thought was you need a big hole right in the middle so you can like hoist things up and, and it will make the, the bottom feel a lot more open. Um, That's a good idea. You know, a couple, I got some really good suggestions and one of them was to do like a, a, a hole in the floor. I thought mm-hmm. that was a really good one. And a couple of people just said only go halfway because you still have a considerable yeah, yeah. amount of floor space upstairs for digital and sewing. Which is really yeah. what I would want the second floor to be for digital, like laser cutting and leather work and sewing, you know, just to lay out mm. just somewhat of a clean space without any grinders and stuff. But uh, mm. I, I'm working. It's it's funny, you know, when, whenever I need an answer to something, I just put it out there. And in that video, one of the fans in the that wrote a message says, I own a company that makes those trusses if you need uh-huh. a price. You know, I don't I wouldn't expect them to give them to me for free, but maybe he'll give me a break. So we're talking right now through email. I sent them over the engineering specs, and we'll see what he says. I wanted to pick your brain, uh, pick your brain a little, Jimmy. Um, I, I mean, you're so prolific with the amount of things you're making. Just every day, there's something else. Um, whether it's just a small thing on Instagram or whole videos coming out, and um, I wanted to ask about how much you plan your projects. Like recently, you finished that big boat. Um, I think for Carolina shoes and um, so way back the start of my kind of woodworking fine woodworking I'm I had the urge to build an acoustic guitar and I was like right jumped on YouTube found all these like hours long videos and I just I can't do it and that's not I can't sit there and, and there's too much to learn and too much minute detail mm-hmm. I just yeah I just took took my guitar down to the workshop and started to copy it. And that was 
all all the research I did and I wanted to know like how much are you putting in do you do any research to do like two minutes and then just go to the workshop and, and work it out or that's usually what I do <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well it's funny so if we're talking about the boat I started the boat May 5th last year that was the day I began to make the the stations for the boat those are the stations that you build the boat over and that was May 5th last year and, and I thought I honestly, I said the day I did that, I'm like, this is going to be in the water by August. I was out of my mind because it wasn't until <laughs> last week that I put the thing in the water going on That's exactly, right. exactly 11 and a half months later. But I honestly didn't realize as I got into the boat, I always, I always say, I'll just deal with that hard part when it gets to it, when there's nothing yeah. else to avoid except for that one thing. I could avoid it, everything until I get to the point where I can't avoid it anymore. Then I do the research on it. <laughs> yeah. Because I don't want to know how hard it is until I get there. I want to almost like get myself, you know, like some, like in, my agent or, or my, my lawyer would say, let them get pregnant. I'm pregnant. I got, I, I got to <laughs> deliver the baby, you know. It's like, if, but if I research it at first and I get intimidated, I won't even start. Yeah, I'm the same. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just, I always say to myself, I did that. I made one of those. I was able to fix that. This is nothing. You know, like in that by now I had already built a canoe. I had already watched mm. Nick Offman build a canoe through my camera for 25 hours. So like watching Nick build the canoe that I that I filmed him build. A lot of people misunderstood think that we did it together. I watched him build it through my camera. Then I watched mm. it in the edit for literally umpteen hours when I did the I did I edited it down like 20 chapters. It's like 4 hours worth of of final edit video. The final edit was about four That's hours amazing. of the video. So I studied all that literally with my own eyes. Now, if I was just a cameraman, I'd be like, wow, this is interesting. But I'm a builder with the anticipation of maybe doing it myself. So I really took notice of all the, the nuances of the build. And then it wasn't until 10 years later that I decided to build my own canoe. But that was that that build was so ingrained in my eyes and my mind that while I was building my own canoe, so many answers were just second nature. And then when I then when I approached this boat, I was like, I can make this. I built that. I don't need to. I don't need to get too deep in the weeds of what to do here. And now the, that's all to to just to bring you up to speed. This afternoon, Joan from Bear Mountain Boats, who's the woman who owns it, her and her husband on the the boat company that makes those plans, she called me just to say hello. We're we're close friends, and we were talking. And she's like, "Well, you did such a beautiful job on the boat. I'm so." I'm so proud of you. You did, you know, you did a beautiful rendition of our plans. And she was just being really, really sweet. And she goes, there's a lot of unanswered questions in the plans, right? You have to figure it out yourself. And I was just laughed. I'm like, she didn't want to, she didn't want to tell me that in the beginning. Right. We, just had that, we just had that conversation a few hours ago. She's like, there's a lot of guesswork, huh? I'm like, yeah. I go, but you know, I, at first funny. I was intimidated and then I realized, okay, this is where the artist comes in. This is what you have yeah, to Yeah. This is where, you know, having having to look at reference photos of other people who built the same boat. So I Googled that particular boat design online and there's a lot of they have a lot of documentation. So so looking at other people's interpretations of the plans. And it was funny because I, I Googled where I placed the, where I placed the seat. I put all this, the seat risers in place and it's done. I can't undo it. And then I'm looking at somebody else's boat. I'm like, oh, man, he put his boat seat like two inches lower than mine. Maybe I did it wrong. <laughs> I got all nervous. I was like, no, no, no. The boat's, the boat's still going to float. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There's not going to be – I'm not getting graded on this. It's my boat. It's fine. And then I saw another picture where the seat was raised up. So it, it's just an interpretation. Hmm. It's always reassuring to hear that every single maker struggles with those same things. Yeah. It's a hard bit. And it just sort of sits in the corner and you look at it and look at it and look at it. And it's like, that's tomorrow's job. That's tomorrow's yeah. job, not today's. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're, we're exactly the same, aren't we? I mean, mm. I've been promising yeah. to build a kayak for four years now. So Yeah. 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 One Keep day. promising. Well, it <laughs> Keep doesn't promising. take six months, apparently. It takes 12. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Joe, what were you going to say? Uh, I was going to say... Um, the the uh, consequence, I guess, of building in that style where you don't do as much research as perhaps you ought to is that, one, you, it's what I find. The thing you're making, especially the first one, is never perfect, and you learn a lot on it. But if you only get a chance to be make that one uh, time, if it's a client job 
you've never made the thing before you're just going to throw yourself in the deep end and then you you just at the end of it or towards the end of it you start going well i i could have and i should have but now i've got this i've got to deal with it it's not a hundred percent it'll cross the mark for the client but you know i'm not actually a hundred percent happy with it but that's kind of the nature when you take on a a one-of-a-kind piece a client for a client right yeah absolutely like for instance i'm building i've I've promised the world and a few clients that are involved in this job that I'm going to build a pool table. And I've been seriously, I've been seriously intimidated by it because I'm working for a company that builds pool tables for a living. They're called black billiards. They've been in business for a hundred years. It's a collaboration between me as the artist, them as the supplier of the professional grade pool table top and instructions to me and type on glue. And so that I can't wing it. You know, that's not really like a boat. Mm. I can as far yeah. as the is the decoration, which is really what I'm supposed to provide. But coming along with the decoration is the very specific Last. regulations of how the pocket goes, mm. the distance mm. between yeah. the opening of the pocket and the corner, the angle of the mm. bumpers, and all this stuff. And I'm just like, every time he tells me, this guy Jeff, he's a sweet guy. He's very, very understanding. Every time he tells me, I'm just like, okay. It's like clip the red wire. Don't clip the blue wire. It's like he gives me all these. <laughs> he wrote. I wrote. He came and dropped off the slate. And he's like, okay, this this is two inches from here. This has to be one. And I'm like scribbling this all down. I'm like, yeah, I'll what? understand this. I'll understand this when he leaves. And then when he leaves, I'm like, okay. Then I go to try and do an illustrator file of it. So it's all kind of like specked out exactly for me to copy. And I'm just chicken scratch and. I went through it again with him, and now it's time to really actually start to get to work. I, I did some sketch models. I'm going to make the bumpers. I'm going to make a sketch model of the bumpers out of MDF, so I don't waste some good walnut just trying to guess. And mm-hmm. I'm going to basically, at least for the bumpers, I'm going to make a sketch model, and then so that's that's how I'm going to solve it. But I've been stalling, no doubt. I've been stalling because I'm nervous. <laughs> Let's get him on speed dial. Yeah. But that's what happened. But, you know, at the end of, at the end of the day, like that's, uh, that intimidates the hell out of me right now. But I know, I think to myself, okay, by like the end of, by the end of June, that has to basically be done. So I got no time to mess around. And like, I just think to myself right now, I have no idea what's in the end of this maze, but I know by the end, I don't know what's in between, but I know when I get out of the maze, I'm going to have figured it out. Can I ask you, Jimmy, about, uh, about the old Netflix show? Making fun sure. for, for people yep. who haven't haven't seen it. It's definitely worth a watch. I watched it with uh, my son on the weekend, and he said uh, his workshop's a lot cleaner than yours, Daddy. So <laughs> oh, thanks, I should thanks see for it now. dropping me in that. Um, I'll send him a picture of it now. <laughs> um, but what I wanted to ask is, how do you find being involved with shows like that where you're purely in front of the camera versus your own content where you're able to... I don't know whether you feel as though you have more control uh, or whether you like having less control with things like that like what's when when there's a big team like that you really you know i i can be an egomaniac and be like it's my show it's this i never really i would never take that approach because that's how you lose 35 friends over the course of like you know six weeks worth of work i i am very i'm very open i'm very collaborative when it comes to that type of thing because i do have my own place to park my ego. I could do everything I alone when everybody leaves. But in a collaborative situation like that, I want I really I really try my best and you know I hope if any of them listen to this they'd be like, Yes you did or no you're an asshole you didn't do that. <laughs> but I would like to believe that I'm very collaborative and you know everybody's ideas are listened to and and I, I certainly don't want to be uh, egomaniacal on a set like that. And like I said, everybody would leave and they everybody be like, oh, let's where let's all meet up at the, the steakhouse tonight. And they're like, you want to come? I'm like, no, I have to do a YouTube video. They're like, you still work? I'm like, yeah, I'm still. So during the course of those three months of shooting that we did, I was able to put, post seven YouTube videos, mm-hmm. and they're pretty involved. So they would leave. <laughs> I remember the one night everybody left, and they all came back in the morning, and there was like a fully built outhouse <laughs> outside, like <laughs> to go to the bathroom and. And they're like, you made that when we left last night at seven until this morning. I'm like, yeah, I still have to shoot all my beauties because the sun went down. I just was able to build inside the shop, and then I dragged it out the backyard and built it on location. But um, I, I, I just try my best to just be real collaborative, and especially when it's not like that was 
so-called my show, I do it in air quotes because it really was like the cast mm. show, even though my I was the host. But the when I'm on a set, for instance, of making making it the Nick Offerman, Amy Poehler, NBC show, I am just simply a student. I keep my mouth shut and just do whatever I'm told. Right. You know, I, I really know my place. On my making fun show, I was a producer, so the producers involved me in a lot of the behind the scenes conversations, even that didn't include the cast. Because I, I got the producer credit, and out of respect to me, the people would include me in every decision, and even things I didn't even care to know about. Mm-hmm. But and I would just I would basically say, do you really need my input? Because this is above my pay grade. I don't really need to be involved in you know, where the air conditioning unit comes from. Fair enough. But if you want my input, <laughs> so I'll each, say, each, one of, each one of the episodes of Megan Fountain was probably, what, a couple of weeks worth of filming? Uh, at least at least one week, maybe just a couple of days thereafter, because we would shoot like four or five solid days of building four, sometimes five. But then we would also need a beautiful day to shoot the third act. So we would need a sunny day. And it was particularly rainy that mm. that spring. I remember that Mike O'Dare looks at me and goes, when does it stop raining here? I go, Mike, I, I don't have a direct line to Mother Nature. I said, I don't know what to tell you. Because you told me it was beautiful here in the spring. I was like. Yeah, collectively, on the average over 19 years, it's typically beautiful here in the spring. But it was just, it was un, it was uncanny, it was un, unbelievably rainy that spring, and we just had, kept having to jog days around. So, like, it was going to be like all the, the prop team would get everything ready for the third act, all those wacky things we did at the final scene. They'd get all that ready, and then it'd be like, oh, we call for rain tomorrow. So, tomorrow's going to be day one of episode six. Like, okay. You know, we all shift gears in a moment's notice. At the end of that three-month period, did you feel delighted to have people out of the barn and it was yours again? Uh, You know, it was nice because it it was nice that because of the show, it forced me to clean up, basically. (laughs) Because all those people that I had to, like, get rid of all the junk in the woods and do my best to clean up and get all the trucks, 10 trucks, get all the trucks to the other properties so they're not hanging around in the background. And when they left, I was I was left with a clean slate. So it was really nice. That's why I said jokingly, the shop looked great on TV. Where do you see it now? <laughs> it's not that out of order. I just have a couple of projects. I have like, you know, two or three too many projects in there. But in general, uh, it was very it was very melancholy because it was like the best summer camp that we had all experienced coming to an end. <laughs> and we all knew like the chances of us getting back together or, you know, almost zero, but we all really had a good feeling. And then the season is comes and comes out and everyone's like, wow, this is going to be great. You know, hopefully we get to shoot again by August, 2022, but it never happened. Mm-hmm. So. With that. So, you know, we're talking about your Netflix special and we've been talking about a lot of your different business endeavors along the way. Do you have a, a sort of a mantra or philosophy about how you manage the business side of it versus the craft, because we've talked a lot about all of the different business or you know um, areas that you're involved in. But in terms of making, how do you then find time for that? Or was there a particular point in your career where you thought, "I'm starting to lose touch with making. It's all business now." No, honestly, you know it's funny because Rob wrote me before. He said, "Oh, I'm having a hard time dealing with taxes. He's sitting with taxes," and I just said. And this is my philosophy. And it's funny because my my girlfriend I've been hanging around with, she's getting to know me. It's only been about four or five months, but she's getting to know me. And she's like, she goes, what about this? I go, I have a guy that deals with that. She's like, and how about, what about sales? I go, I don't know. You got to talk to Howard. And what, she's like, so that's it. You're just an artist. She's like, you just, you don't want to know anything. I go, I really don't. She's like, do you know how much money you have in the bank? I go, I think I do. I don't know. She's like, <laughs> <laughs> I have people for that. I have people for that. I really no. I only have a like I have an accountant and my business partner, and he handles stuff. But when it gets down to the weeds, like Rob said to me today, I'm dealing with tax stuff. I said, find somebody else to do that for you and just make art. Because I'm really like I've tried to be good at that. I know what I'm worth. So when somebody comes to me, it's like, hey, do you want to do an ad for this much money? I'll say that's not enough money. Or do you want to build this fabrication for me for this much money? My my this is the businessman in me. I say. And this is a lesson to the audience. When somebody comes to me and they want me to build a kitchen cabinet or whatever it is, they say, how much? I first say, I go, what is your budget? I'm not going to tell you my price. I'm going to, you're going to tell me how much you want to spend. Mm. 
and then I'll decide if I want to make it or not. Because I might think in my head 5000 is enough for me, but in your mind, the client might be like, I don't know, 9000 is that enough? And then I'll be like, that, that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> that'll work. That'll, you know, I'll see if I can make, you know what, I think that'll be good. You know, so <laughs> that's my business acumen. Never say the price first because you're going to lose. We, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast over the years and that, yeah, what, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Do, do you get the client to, to spill their budget? And typically in this side of the planet, I think we would all agree that it's very difficult to get a budget out of a potential client. It's very not the norm for the yeah. client to say the budget first. And is it that way in, in the States or is it a bit bit of both? Or Well, it's, it's, it's definitely a mix, but I often say, and I mean, knock wood, I mean, I'm fortunate enough for people to think I'm some celebrity. So when they come to me and they go, well, I only have this much money. And when you put like a little guilt trip on them, I'm not, it's just a little manipulation. I'll be like, well, you tell me how much you want to spend. And they're like, well, you know, I know you don't have time. Well, what if I make it, is it 12,000 enough? And then in my mind, I'm like, I only would have, I would have been happy with seven or eight. Yeah, that's fine. So it's my little manipulation. But sometimes people will say to me, you tell, I'm not saying it, you know, like you go back and forth, they don't say it, you know, it's like a little standoff. And then I say, right. okay, the, for me, it would only be worth my time if it was this much. And then you just literally just right. lay it out honestly. And they, I could again, manipulate them in the way that like, I can only do it for this much. I can't budge on that price. I have so right. many other projects to do. I'll squeeze it in. I'll get it done by this month. And then they'll go, okay. Or they'll go, let me think about it. But I don't, I don't take too many commissions these days unless they're good video or, but like, for instance, if you guys notice my Instagram, I just restored this boat, which was in really bad shape. It's a bar boat. Mm. It's meant to be brought to a location to be turned into a bar. And it's that type of thing I really want to do. I mean, it was a nice piece of budget, but I really did it because I want the client to come back to me and say, oh, this guy fixed this boat. He, maybe he could make this crazy new idea we have because it's really marketing money. And so I did it just to get my foot in the door with this brewing company. And they've been great. Mm. That you know, I, I haven't really gotten to interact with them too much. But this job, they were so easygoing about it. And I sent pictures over today, and they seem to be overjoyed with it. But, you know, the boat itself is a consumable. It's something that's going to be brought out on the highway, and, you know, it's going to get beat up by the sun and the, and the, and the surf. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a location bar. But in general... There was another funny thing I was going to say about business. Oh, people always say about contracts. What if I sign this contract? I say this, there's only two things I look at on a contract. I don't read anything else on the contract. Because no one's ever like, like rights and this and that. You know, that's all just standard boilerplate stuff. I look at how much I'm getting paid and when it's due. I look at those two things and then I sign the contract. It can have 15 pages. I look for two things, how much I'm getting paid and when it's due. I don't care about anything else. I have an agent that will read it, but in general... If I, hope some, I hope some potential clients of yours are listening now and they're starting to insert. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that, that's, that's for the young maker out there that wants to maybe try and get into the entertainment making business or just business in general. Because that's all that matters. What's the reason for that? This is too much to read. It's all nuanced BS. It's <laughs> just too much to read. You know, like somebody will call me and be like, hey, I got to sign this contract, but they're going to own the rights to my, my YouTube video. I'm like, your YouTube video is never going to become Seinfeld. It's never going to become the Seinfeld series. And it's one YouTube video. You sign the rights away. Who cares? It doesn't matter. It's a, you give, who, you, as long as you can put it on your channel, you're getting the monetization on your channel. If it shows up right. somewhere else, if it could be published six other places, the people that only ever see it on your channel aren't going to go, you know what? I prefer to watch it <laughs> on the client's channel. <laughs> yeah. right. Like, for instance, like there was a time where every video that I made for Lincoln was also published on their channel and my channel. And then they realized yeah. it doesn't even matter because no one's watching their channel anyway. I don't care. Right. I didn't care. I was like, you guys want to publish it on your channel? I don't care. So yes, that whole there's no such thing as bad publicity. It's, it's yeah. yeah, and then people are like this guy stole my video. What do you think? I'm like, well, that's the reason why I put my name on everything. Because when my video gets stolen, I have no control over taking it. I could spend my time and petition Facebook, hey, this guy stole my videos. But as long as my name is in it, there's going to be a whole crop of new people that have no idea who I am that'll see 
who's this moron that writes his name on everything? And then they'll Google me and then they'll find the source. I've had several people pull, like, for instance, Derek, one of my closest friends in the world right now, he started seeing my name. And David Welder was my assistant when I was in the city shop. And he would, David Welder would work in my shop and shoot videos in my shop. And Derek was like, who? Why is this guy's name written all over this kid's shop? It's not even his name. He doesn't understand. Like, what is the thing? Like, what is the rest of me? And is that like his rock band? Derek said he didn't understand. And then when he realized that he like Googled it and realized, oh, this he's Jimmy's assistant working in a Jimmy's shop when Jimmy's not around. And so that's, that's how. I, one, of the, one of the first things I remember from seeing your videos years ago when I first started making things was painting your power tools white. Yeah, that was funny. Such a smart thing to do. Well, I, I'll like, tell you the story behind that. Why give them the free publicity? I was work. I did a, my very first paid endorsement was with Dewalt Tools, and they gave me. I already owned like twenty Dewalt Tools, and they gave me one. <laughs> so in that first <laughs> video where I like dragged the box away, I did this wooden toolbox and. Everyone's calling me like Tool Boy and, you know, oh, look at DeWalt Boy. DeWalt, but DeWalt only paid Corporate me for that. Chill. Yeah, they paid me for that one video and it took them months to pay me. And when they finally paid me and I was like waiting around for another video to come my way and they never did. Like they hardly answered me. Their communication was really poor. And then I said I was driving with Taylor, my girlfriend at the time. I was like, I have to come up with something. It's driving me nuts that all my tools are yellow. <laughs> I, I, how can I get paid by them? And I was like, I am like. We drive up and down the interstate here, and there's it's a big white billboard that says your ad here. Big white billboard. Right. And it just says your advertisement here. Call this number. And so I said, that's it. I'll paint all the tools white like the your ad here board. And basically letting everybody know I'm no longer a DeWalt shill, but I will be if somebody wants to come along. I'll paint my tools <laughs> whatever color you want. And I still haven't landed. I still have not landed a company <laughs> All this time. None of I those power tool companies seem to to be on board with YouTube advertising, huh? No, I mean, you know, Festool is starting to break into a few people's world, but not mine yet. I no. did get to meet them, yeah. but, you know, I don't know. I did, and I just bought a Festool track saw the other day. It's my second Festool that I've owned. But I have Milwaukee stuff. I have a Metabo is a good brand. I have, mm-hmm. I, I and I have lots of DeWalt, but... That's, you know, it's, I, I don't have any loyalty. If somebody wanted to pay me, I would hide the colors everywhere else. That's in, So, for instance, like, I'm known for the white tools, but occasionally I will also have a Milwaukee. But I'll make sure that I also use DeWalt. So everyone's like, oh, this guy's no shill. He's got seven colors on his workbench right now. So, I, I like, if, if the video starts, if I'm realizing I keep grabbing the Milwaukee too often, I'll make sure I, I'll grab the, the DeWalt nail gun just to keep people on their toes. Earlier on, yeah. Jimmy, you mentioned about degrees Celsius, and it got me thinking that you, you'll be coming over to um, the Southern Hemisphere. We're all very much in the metric world, and you are going to be doing a live build against yep. uh, April. And do you work in millimeters much, or is it going to hamper you that all the tools you're going to be able to get here, very good they're point. all going to be metric unless we do something about it? Um, well, he's know, looking for that contract now. <laughs> no, I'm, look, I'm looking for my I'm looking for my ruler. My ruler is right over there, just out of reach. I use what's called an engineer scale. It's not metric. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not. It's not. Uh, well, it is. It is. It is more imperial. It's. Uh, I use tenths of an inch. So my right. my my Stanley ruler has you know imperial on the top and then tenths of an inch machinist on the bottom. So oh, I will probably bring that one with me just because. It's just easier for me to read. You know, I, I, I mm-hmm. have used centimeters in the past, and, and I, it's not foreign to me in, in the way that it is to most Americans. You know, it's not like a Bud Light beer to me, you know, like the way <laughs> the Bud Light things were going on. <laughs> I'm not going to be gonna machine great. gunning any uh, centimeter uh, tape measures, believe me. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't scare me. I, I went to architecture school, and in architecture school, my teacher in the 80s, he, he basically said, you guys should just know both. He goes, you know, the way the future goes, and this is 35 years ago, he goes, the way the world's going, he goes, you know, they're going to be phasing out Imperial, but obviously they haven't. It looks like they're both here to stay forever. But it is... I watched a very interesting video about that. And in the US, they have a a standard for uh, their measurements. So anytime they want to relate back to what an inch is, they can can 
go to this institute and they'll tell you. That institute is based entirely on metric. <laughs> they then convert it to imperial because that's what everyone's been using. So as you say, it will eventually likely go that way. It is, it is already at, at that, that stage, at that level, but it's just about keeping people uh, in their, their understanding and their, their comfort zone. Jimmy, how far did you go in architecture? I went, so in, uh, in America we have, I don't know if you guys have the same system, we have, you go from first to 12th grade, and then in 12th grade you graduate and go to university. So in, in my 10th grade year, so, so 10th, 11th, and 12th, I took architecture for half the day at a vocational school. So I would take architecture, engineering, and math. So I would take, uh, the first year was architecture and um, physics, and the second year was architecture and uh, oh, geometry, physics, and calculus, along with architectural problem solving. So we would get, you know, for instance, like I remember one of the design projects we had to do was uh, a cookie, a cookie making business that would fit in a in a, a parking spot at like a busy shopping mall. So it's basically like a mobile cookie business. And it was just made up by the teacher and we all had to design these pods. You know, that's just one that comes to mind. But we had we, we all all had also to design a house throughout the course of the semesters. You know, we had like we had to build our own house, so we built the whole house virtually. And I say virtually, I'm talking about on paper with a pen and a paper. You know, we had to do the architectural plans, and it was a really great, great training for me. And then when I got to the end of that training, I decided it's time to go to university, and I didn't really like architecture. I found it to be too rigid. I was, I was more of an artist. I started to realize I was more of an artist. And when I was asking friends, Friends and family, they would say, you know, why don't you go to art school for graphic design? And I didn't even know what graphic design was. And I was like, all right, I'll sign up for graphic design. I don't know. It's not architecture, <laughs> but it's still art. And, you know, and then I immediately was pushed into color theory and fonts and then graphic design. This is all in 1986, 87. And, you know, there was no computers yet. And it was a great education. I really don't regret the path that I took. It was really good. And then I, then I found in my second or third year of school, of art school, I went to the New York City School of Visual Arts. I met somebody that was a 3D artist. He was he was my teacher who was introduced to me by somebody, and I started taking his classes. and He became a close friend, and then he ultimately ended up hiring me to come back to the school to teach 3D classes. So that was really the beginning of me realizing that I went from architecture to 2D art, which was still too constricting to me to make 3D art, which was basically like three dimensional illustration, which involved product design problem solving for camera, which really was a bigger part of it. But then it's like, hey, let's make um let's make a a, a cool mailbox, you know, and, and that was become product design. And then it's like, oh, you know, like there's this new wacky product. And he would just make up something. He's like, now we need a package for this wacky product. So then that became three-dimensional package design. So it involved mm. all this 3D world. And then he hired me to come back and teach basics, like how to do how to fold up like a graphic into a three-dimensional box and using mold-making materials and, you know, clay and just all very basics, like three-dimensional stuff. Very cool. And then you move from that into toy design, am I right? Well, yeah, so it's right right at the end of college. I, I fulfilled all my requirements, so I had a lot of time left over, even though I was, you know, I was paying for a full curriculum. So the, my counselor said you could take any class you want now. You could take three or four like completely random classes if you want. And so I looked at the schedule and I saw a class called Toy Design. So I said, oh, that'll be fun. So I took that class and I ended up becoming close friends with a guy there named Mark Seta Ducati. And Mark introduced me into the world of toys. And so as soon as I got out of the School of Visual Arts, I got right into the toy world with Mark. But everything that I learned with my friend Kevin, which was all the 3D stuff, was a perfect fit to go into mm -hmm. the toy world. Because now I, I now I basically had the confidence and the conceptual training to come up with all kinds of cool, fun stuff. But working in the toy business, I had a reason to market it. So whereas before I was just like waiting to be hired to make something for photography or film, here I could come up with my own thing and then immediately try and market it. You know, with Mark's help at the time. But then, you know, he kind of basically got me started. And then with my brother together, we started developing toys and our own relationships in the toy world. And would you just pitch? Would, would you just pitch an idea straight to a, a specific toy company? Yeah. Or did you have an intermediary? In some cases, direct. In some cases, with an intermediary. 
As a, as a matter of example, my very my first my my most successful product was a product we did called Gurgling Guts, which is like a squishy keychain. It's like a bloody mm-hmm. eyeball on a keychain. We came up with that goofing around in the just brainstorming in the workshop. Me and my brother and my friend Perry at the time he was also involved in that. And this toy agent of mine, Shelly Goldberg, Shelly said, "You got any crazy things that you want? I'm going to go run it. I'm going to do the rounds." He would call me and say, "I'm going to go." see these 10 companies in the next three weeks. I have appointments. Give me anything you got. And I just gave him like a box of like four or five stupid prototypes. And he comes back to me and goes, these guys at this company want to make this product. They love it. And they want you to be integrally involved in designing and developing it. And, you know, that doesn't always happen. They just loved it. They were just so excited about the stupid quirkiness of it. They're like, they really like put it back in our hands. Like partly to save money, because if they hired a team of designers, they would have to pay them healthily. In this case, it's like, hey, right. it's your product, it's your idea, help us design it. And you know, it'll be more heartfelt, and then they wouldn't have to pay us because we would just take money out of the royalties. <laughs> and so, right. Yeah, I was going to say, will you maintain royalties on that for like indefinitely? Technically, yes. You know, I see it yeah. online right now, and I don't know who's getting paid for it because I know I'm not. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I also know that it doesn't sell like it did when it first came out. When it came out in 1995, right. like we were selling millions of units. That was before TikTok. It was before iPads, iPhones. You know, now there's like so many millions of distractions. The average kid. Many things. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, what like what widget sells? Like what little three dimensional molded object sells anymore? You know, like like who's buying this? They're just gonna look at a picture of it online. They don't need to even actually have it in their hands. You know. (laughs) So it's tough. So like for instance, now I make my money selling something that physically doesn't exist. I make right. my money selling content. That's right. You know all the things I that physically cool though, because you, because your content though is about making things. It will inspire younger generations to do things with their hands. Oh yeah, so it's absolutely. Kind of full circle and it's started people again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, mm. definitely, it's the idea. You know, I, I'm, on, I'm, I'm, on, I'm always in this like duality where it's like make content, but then I also have to make products to sell to my fans. So it's like I sell the razor blade, I sell the ice pick, I have to come up with more. Mm-hmm. And then if I don't talk about them, they just kind of go, they don't sell. And so like my 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 website guys is like, hey, talk about the razor blade. Come on, t- do something with the razor blade. <laughs> because, you know, he has an interest in me selling stuff on the website. And, right. you know, so I like I, everybody around me has to keep reminding me that we're marketing things here as well as making content. All right, we are coming up to time. So before we, we run off, just want to do a quick plug. Uh, for wood dust yes happening in less than a month now so jimmy you're going to be coming down to melbourne yeah we're going to be uh myself joe and brian are going to be hosting the event where jimmy and april are going to be doing uh taking part in the woodworker games where essentially they're going to be uh, doing a build-off against each other we're going to have matt eslier there it's the uh there's a a bit of a pre-event on the 19th of may and then the 20th and the 21st of May is, is the main event at the meat markets in Melbourne. So I want to encourage everyone to come down. Um, as I say, we're going to have some high-profile guests, and it's going to be an entertaining show as well. So, yeah, hope to see everyone there. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. It's going to be exciting. And uh, thanks, Jimmy. Um, as I said in the beginning, it's been a huge treat to have you on the show, and, and it's, it's, uh, well, thanks, guys. it's a big honor as well. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to seeing you guys. I'm honored, so thank you guys very much. And I'm going to get myself a centimeter ruler tomorrow and stop practicing. <laughs> you want millimeters. You want millimeters, not centimeters, all right? <laughs> all right, Jimmy. All right, guys. Thanks, man. Thank you very much. Thanks again. See you in Melbourne.